to receive the Queen Elizabeth Prize. I was honored. They picked the work we had done on drug delivery for macromolecules as being important. And then, of course, just a few years later, it would become even more important because that helped enable the COVID vaccines. Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and welcome to the Create the Future podcast brought to you by the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, celebrating engineering visionaries and inspiring creative minds. Today's guest is a brilliant chemical engineer and entrepreneur who's won so many awards we'd reach the end of the podcast if I tried to list them all. But here's just a few. The Kyoto Prize, the Charles Stark Draper Prize, the Max Planck Research Award and in 2015, the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. Professor Robert or Bob Langer, was born in Albany, New York, got a chemical engineering degree from Cornell University and a doctorate from MIT. And it was during his postdoc in the mid-1970s that Bob developed two technologies while working on how to restrict tumour growth and on controlled release drug delivery systems. This drug delivery innovation won him the Queen Elizabeth Prize. It's led to new treatments for brain cancer as well as other diseases and also played a role in the COVID vaccine, for which we are all incredibly grateful. And if that's not enough, he's known as the founder of the field of tissue engineering. Welcome, Bob, to the Create the Future podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now, let's start with that drug delivery system, because when examining what you've actually done, it reminded me of Doctor Who's method of interdimensional travel, that the TARDIS, which as sci-fi fans know, may look like an old police box, but is a lot bigger on the inside. And that's because you use small particles to deliver much bigger drug molecules. Now, is that a fair representation? It's a fair representation of the little pill that G.O. Traverso and we developed at MIT and now being further developed by Novo Pharmaceuticals, Novo Nordisk. You know, basically we came up with a way where you can actually swallow something and have it inject something in the stomach in a way that it doesn't hurt. But one of the key points is making sure that when we do the injection, the uh, injector is always facing the stomach wall. So the thing is, when you swallow something, it's going to tumble. And we want to make sure it always tumbled in a way so that uh, the portion where the injection take place takes place faces the stomach wall. And to do so, we modeled it after a leopard tortoise because it has the right exact weight, right weight distribution so that it tumbles in exactly the right way. So how do you manage that, that you get this even weight distribution? I mean, in in theory, that sounds quite simple. Well, it's actually not an even weight distribution. It's an uneven weight distribution. If it was even, then it wouldn't probably tumble the right way. So we actually have it weighted in certain ways. And really, we modeled it after a couple of things. I mean, the leopard tortoise is the main one, but some children have what's called weeble wobble toys. And that th- those are also weighted in, a, in an interesting way. So by changing the weight distribution, no matter what you do, it, you can do what's called self-writing. In other words, I could throw it up in the air, uh, it would land, um, you know, let's say you didn't swallow it. I could throw this little pill up in the air, you know, quite a distance. It would land on the floor. It might tumble around there too. But no matter what, it would end up with the portion we want facing, in that case, the uh, the carpet. 
uh, and and it's really because of of the self writing principle, getting the weight distribution exactly right, so that no matter how it tumbles, it will always tumble with uh, the part you want facing, in that case, the carpet, and and of course, in the case of a person, your stomach wall. And which drugs then were proving difficult to to deliver from from taking a pill before your innovation? Well, a lot. Uh, I mean, the, the one, of course, that a lot of people were interested in, Nova Nordisk in particular, is insulin. Uh, but I think any large molecule, including messenger RNA and siRNA and DNA, um, any proteins, any of those antibodies, all of those are uh, generally not delivered by mouth. They're generally injected. And of course, if you had something like insulin, which a lot of little, little children take, they don't want to get injected. In fact, there's a terrible compliance problem with getting people injected, and and so that, you know, so that's a concern. So there there are really many many drugs that people just don't swallow because none will get in. Even small molecules that are destroyed by the liver would be amenable to what we're doing. And what was it that made you realize you had a solution? We had this idea of using micro needles a long time ago. That's kind of how we started. And then, because uh, you could swallow micro needles, we'd worked on micro needle patches for transdermal delivery. We are still working on that. But we also wondered whether you could swallow these. And then it just evolved from there. I mean, but that was kind of the first step, you know. And then later on, you know, we tried to figure things out step by step. Did you need micro needles or could you have a full needle? How, how what what should the pill look like, so to speak? Or what? How do we solve all the problems that the needle gets shot out at the right time, that it uh, doesn't hurt, that it's reproducible, all those kinds of things. When you started this, did you realize it had an application for very a very specific types of, of diseases immediately? Well, our thinking, and this is true for an awful lot of the things we do, is that our thought was that it could be useful for many diseases. Certainly, Insulin and diabetes were one, but really we we kind of viewed this as a platform technology, uh, just like when we first developed nanoparticles for drug delivery. Uh, that that we viewed it could be useful for almost anything. Now, one of the worst brain tumors is something called glioblastoma. What is it about this disease that makes it so dangerous and and difficult to treat? Well, cancer in general is, is often difficult to treat. Here, of course, the type of tumor that it is, it spreads in a, in a certain type of way, and, and it's in a place, the brain, that's hard to get to. So, I mean, you have to, a lot of drugs would have to go through the blood-brain barrier, and usually they don't, and the tumor often spreads in a, in a lot of places. Brain surgery is certainly one way you can do it, but Usually what's happened in the case of brain surgery is that, well, first, people don't, would certainly prefer not to do that, clearly. But secondly, you know, it often comes back. So it's it's been a very uh, tough, tough disease. It still, still is a very tough disease. And so your drug delivery system for treatment of brain cancer, how do you deliver what's effectively chemotherapy directly to a tumor site? This is called the gliadel wafer. It really started with research we did in the early 80s on creating new materials that would dissolve kind of the way a bar of soap dissolved. But what we did is, uh, the, this was a family called polyanhydrides, 
that we developed of, of materials. And then we collaborated with Henry Brim, who's now chief of neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins. And the idea was that Dr. Brim and really any neurosurgeon operate on a patient, they remove, a, 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 this is brain surgery, they might operate on the patient, remove as much of the tumor as possible. But then before they close up the brain, uh, where the tumor was, and, and maybe still is, because it may be hard to get all of it, they put these little wafers that have uh, are made of this material we designed, uh, along with a chemotherapy drug, because you're putting it right where the tumor is or was, that that's how you do it. It's really physical placement uh, by the neurosurgeon uh, that, that you use to do this. And the, over time, the drug comes out and also the material completely dissolves. And how has that improved over the years? This particular system has been used for the last 26 years in over 30 countries. But uh, the hope would be someday, of course, the drug is, is that you could use better drugs. Right now, the drug that's being used is BCNU, which is an okay drug, but not a great drug. And really, I think the principle of local delivery, which uh, we started uh, and now is being used in heart disease for drug-eluting stents and other things, you know, I think you could put better drugs in than BCNU. The challenge, of course, is that it always takes a lot of time and money anytime you you know, put a new drug in a new in a drug delivery system, or even develop a new drug. And would your direct delivery drug systems are they always just one drug, or can you have multiple drugs on them? You can have multiple drugs. I mean, you know, generally, of course, from an approval standpoint, from regulatory authorities, it's useful to have one drug. We've actually made drug delivery systems which is with as many as ten drugs in them. Uh, you know, and shown that they work in animals, but uh, there's no, there's probably no limit on the number that you could put in if you wanted to. We actually are working on delivery system uh, for hearing loss, where we actually have two drugs uh, put put into a delivery system. Now, this is all pretty astounding stuff we're, we're, we're talking about here and just sort of casually mentioned so many diseases where technology and innovation is helping. So let's let's go back to university, um, you know, coming towards the end of your chemical engineering degree. At that point, did you have a, a clear career path in mind that I am going to work in this area, designing drug delivery systems? No, I really didn't have a very clear idea at all. In fact, when I was finishing my graduate work, you know, most all, this was the 1970s, and almost all my friends went to the oil industry. And so I really thought I'd probably do that too. But when I would do these job interviews, I wasn't that excited about it. And so I started looking for ways that I could use my chemical engineering background to help people more directly. I thought about you know, doing uh, teaching and, and, and STEM education. Uh, it wasn't called maybe that then, but I was interested in doing that, but no place would hire me to do that. So they thought about medicine and no place would hire me to do that either. But finally, <laughs> one man, Judah Folkman at uh, Harvard Med did. So it was when you were doing your postdoc then at Harvard Medical School and, and you were also working at Children's Hospital in Boston, I, I believe. It, it sounds like this is where the magic happened. This is where everything sort of came together. Yes. What happened is Children's Hospital is is a part of, well, it's one of the Harvard Medical School hospitals. And Dr. Folkman was there. And, you know, I he had this idea that if you could stop blood vessels from growing, that might be a way to stop cancer, which I thought was an incredible idea. That being said, I had no background in biology. I still don't. Uh, and a lot of people didn't agree with him. 
So my job was to prove that angiogenesis or blood vessel inhibitors did exist. And in so doing, isolate the first inhibitor. So I worked on that. And one of the key problems in that was developing what's called a bioassay, a way to study uh, blood vessels from in growing. And uh, that wasn't so easy. So we had to develop these delivery systems, which would often be tiny particles that could deliver any angiogenesis inhibitor or stimulator uh, for a period of time. And that's where I got involved in trying to come up with ways to create microparticles and nanoparticles that could deliver large molecules. I mean, you've sort of hinted at it, it there, you know, just saying that, you know, you you had a few doors closed <laughs> for you, let's say. Have you had a lot of setbacks um, earlier on in your career? I did, actually. I couldn't get a job at first doing, or to, you know, I had an awful lot of rejections. You know, we published a paper on uh, on the angiogenesis inhibitor, the first angiogenesis inhibitors in the journal Science in 1976, and a paper uh, on tiny delivery systems for large molecules like nucleic acids, which includes RNA and also includes, you know, also included proteins. Uh, so we, and that was in Nature in 1976. But nonetheless, when I first gave lectures on on this work, they were ridiculed. People said that what I was doing was impossible. Uh, the consequence of that is my first nine research grants were rejected, and I applied to chemical engineering departments with, to, for faculty positions. That's my background. But no chemical engineering department in the world would uh, offer me a faculty position. They, I think, thought this bio stuff I was doing didn't make any sense. I finally got a job in a nutrition department. But the year after I joined that department, the faculty head uh, of that department uh, left. So a lot of the senior faculty in the department decided to give me advice, and their advice is I should leave too. So so that was a pretty inauspicious beginning. I just though, was persistent. I got lots of other rejections too. I still do. <laughs> and do you think this was because you were doing something that actually today is encouraged, which is cross-disciplines? Yeah, well, I, I, I don't, well, I think it is, that was certainly a part of it. I was doing cross-disciplines, particularly in areas that people weren't doing very much that then. And I also, you know, I, I don't know that I want to say that it's so encouraged today. It's certainly encouraged in some circles, but still, if you go to most universities, you know, there's really not a lot, I don't, you know, of buildings that are interdisciplinary. We started one at MIT and uh, the Hoke Institute where I am and, 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 and Stanford and Georgia Tech and the University of Chicago and, you know, definitely other, some other places do this kind of thing, but I still don't know that it's widely accepted by any means. Um, and I still think some people look down on it. When I started doing this work, it was very much looked down on. Um, and what do you think your engineering background brought to this work? Do you think it made you think differently to your to your colleagues who perhaps didn't have that chemical engineering background? I, th I think it did. Let me actually give you an example, um, which I think will illustrate this in a pretty graphic way. So I, you know, when I went to Boston Children's Hospital, as you mentioned, I was the only engineer there, you know, and as you and I talked, you know, I began to develop materials, uh, materials for delivering nucleic acids and things like that and cancer drugs. So I was very interested in materials and I kind of was curious, how did materials find their way into medicine, you know, different materials. So what I found is almost always the driving force for bringing materials into medical medicine 
were medical doctors. And what they'd almost always do is go to their house and pick some material in their house that kind of resembled the organ or tissue they wanted to fix. So for example, uh, in 1967, some of the clinicians at National Institutes of Health in the U.S. wanted to make an artificial heart. So they asked what object in their house had a good flex life like a heart, and they chose a lady's girdle. That same material uh, that's made out, that a lady's girdle is made out of is what the artificial heart is made out of today. Because see, once you start down that path, it's very hard to change. A second example are breast implants. What some of the people who were designing them many years ago wanted was something that was kind of squishy. So they actually picked the material in a mattress stuffing. But if you think about it, that's not necessarily a great way to do things, right? The artificial <laughs> heart, people, you know, a lot of times when blood hits it, the lady's girdle material, it forms a clot. The patient gets a stroke and they could die because the, the clot goes to the brain. The breast implants have also had issues. So my feeling being a chemical engineer, one of the things you learn as a chemical engineer is chemical engineering design. So what I started doing was asking the question, what do you really want in a material from an engineering standpoint, from a biology standpoint, from a chemistry standpoint? And then we would design them on the blackboard from first principles and then make them. That's actually how those polyanhydrides that are used for brain cancer are made. And that's how a number of other things we've done are, are developed. That is astonishing. I did not know that. I'm just astonished that they hadn't tried that sooner. But then that's what they needed, obviously, was an engineer to come in and, and, and state that. You're also regarded as the founder of tissue engineering. Did you take the same approach to to that area as well then? Well, that was related. Of course, one of the great things about working with medical doctors is they, you know, talk to you about all kinds of medical problems. The way that started was my colleague and friend, Jay Vacanti. I'd worked with him on the angiogenesis problem in the 70s. And in the early 80s, he began as the head of the liver transplant program at Boston Children's Hospital. And so he would see little babies that he would have to operate on to give them a new liver. So one day he started talking to me about, could he and I come up with a new way to create tissues and organs again from scratch? You know, so we talked about that a lot. Uh, and he, of course, had a lot of vision. He once asked me, could we make um, what I'll call a scaffold that you could put cells on that would have a high enough surface area to volume ratio that uh, a lot of cells could be put on? And so he and I began talking about that. Here, one day, Jay actually saw, you know, we, we originally tried two-dimensional things like coins almost, but, you know, they're made of materials in this case, but we couldn't get enough surface area. One day, Jay saw seaweed. And when he was in Cape Cod, he said, well, could I design a material that looked like that? And so we did. I did. And we put cells on it. And uh, we used that to try to make uh, artificial livers and other you know, other scaffolds later would lead to making artificial skin uh, and so forth. But but so it also, again, involved a number of engineering principles in this case. And quite early on, you became an entrepreneur as well. What what was the first company that you set up? Well, the first one was a little company called Enzatech, later it merged to become uh, what's now called Alchemies. Uh, and that was with Alex Klebanoff, who was one of my colleagues and a number of my students who had worked on this. Uh, and actually, uh, there was a food part of it, which made some of the first fat substitutes and a drug delivery part, which is now, you know, like I say, part of Alchemies. And that would help lead to new treatments for schizophrenia, opioid addiction, diabetes and other diseases. 
And you've co-founded more than 40 biotechnology companies. Now, I mean, I hesitate to use that number because I just feel as though it might have gone up. (laughs) Just might be up a little, might be up a little, but you're you're not far. I mean, generally we maybe do like one a year, sometimes two. Wow. Uh, But uh, that's pretty good. And that includes Moderna, a sort of name that few people perhaps were aware of until the pandemic arrived and all of a sudden we realised that one of our vaccines is made by Moderna. So how did that connection come about with you? Was this as a result of this drug delivery system? Yes. Well, in 2010, four of us, uh, Derek Rossi, Nubar Fay, and Ken Chen and myself, you know, st- started the company with the idea of creating messenger RNA therapeutics. But one of the keys that would certainly turn out to be important is having, you know, a way to deliver the messenger RNA, you know, in in this case through, you know, nanoparticles seem to be the best way for certainly most of it. Uh, You know, and of course, that's that's where we had actually developed the first systems. That's what I mentioned was published in Nature to deliver nucleic acids through tiny particles. You know, in 1976, when we published it, like I say, people were very skeptical but over the years, we and others would break down those barriers and design, you know, better and better nanoparticles. And Moderna, as well as others, continued to design better and better nanoparticles. So nanoparticles are really one of the keys to creating messenger RNA vaccines, whether it's the Moderna one or the BioNTech Pfizer one. Both use nanoparticles, though they're different nanoparticles. But that's exactly right. That was one of the key things still is one of the key things for what Moderna is doing. And, you know, you've had an amazing career. Your career still seems at its peak and it seems to have been at its peak for a very long time. So what sort of started you off? What did what sparked that interest? I'd like to tell you, I really had it well thought out. I'll tell you just two <laughs> quick things. You know, one is when I was a little boy, you know, there, there were these Gilbert sets, uh, rector sets and chemistry sets and microscope sets. And I did like those. I'd get those for presents. And I always enjoyed those. And I loved, you know, I set up a little lab in our house, chemistry, more to do magic tricks and things like that. But really what happened was when I was in high school, you know, I was good in math and science. I was not very good in uh, French and English and other classes. So my dad and my guidance counselor said, well, if you're good in math and science, you should be an engineer. I really didn't know that much what an engineer did, but I, that's, you know, I sort of did what they suggested. I went to Cornell as an undergrad and, and then MIT for graduate work. Well, that, that's good advice there. And, um, and it also sounds as though you've really benefited from key figures, effectively, effectively mentors throughout your careers. What would your advice be to budding engineers? Well, I think engineering is a great, great profession. I mean, I think it helps you think not only the things you learn directly, but the things you learn indirectly, you know, about problem solving and really trying to make an impact, which I think is good. So I think it's a great profession. I still think when somebody's a young engineer, you know, like say an undergraduate, that you want to learn fundamentals. You want to learn whether it's biology or chemistry or physics you want to learn fundamentals of, 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 of whatever it is. I think later on, as you become, if you do decide to go into research and you go to graduate school or do postdoctoral work, I think there you can get more specialized. I think it's very worthwhile to look to dream big dreams and think about projects where, you know, that can make a, a big difference on the world. But I think, I think uh, engineering profession is, 
a terrific profession. And I mentioned at the um, start of the podcast, you know, just some of the huge number of awards that um, you've received during your career. What did being awarded the Queen Elizabeth Prize mean to you? That meant a great deal to me. I mean, it was the second time it was given, the first time it was given for like the internet and the World Wide Web. You know, so I was honored that they picked me and actually just me to receive that award. You know, actually, in a way, I have to give the award committee, not because they gave it to me, but a lot of credit because they picked, you know, the work we had done on drug delivery for macromolecules as, as, as being important. And then, of course, as you pointed out, just a few years later, it would become even more important because, you know, that w- helped enable the COVID vaccines. Uh, so, but I, I think shining a light on bioengineering and shining a light on drug delivery systems, which, you know, an award like that does, I was, I thought that was really important because it shines a light on it and shows the world that, you know, a ver- an outstanding group of judges thought it was important. And so did that prize then have an impact and effectively add to the legacy to the work that you were doing? Yeah, that's hard for me to think of me as having a legacy, but I, I, I think it certainly, to the extent that I do, sure. I mean, I think it's such an important prize, partly because of the awards committee and, and their backgrounds, you know, presidents of universities and, you know, Nobel Prize winners, and, and also partly because of the other people that have gotten that award. In fact, the most recent prize went to uh, the innovation involving permanent magnets. Have you ever used permanent magnets uh, within your field? Yeah, we've developed uh, what I'll call magnetically triggered drug delivery systems. I mean, it's early stage basic work, but yes, uh, we can use, uh, we actually published a number of papers in the 70s and 80s uh, on uh, magnetic delivery systems that you could get pulsatile release from. So, yeah, yes, absolutely. The year that you got the award, it was presented to you by the Queen. What was that moment like for you as someone who's started off with so many, like you say, so many setbacks and having grants refunded to suddenly being at that position where you're in front of the Queen? Well, it's a tremendous honour for me. I mean, the Queen was there and, you know, six members of the royal family and, you know, and they spent quite a bit of time with me and others there. Uh, my family was there, including my children and wife and sister. I, you know, to me, it was a tremendous honor. I mean, you know, to to be there with her and her husband and be in Buckingham Palace, which is such an amazing place. I, I, I will never forget it. It's great. And you probably know that the, the trophy is designed through a, a competition that encourages people who are interested in engineering and design, that that's STEAM combination. You know, you hear of actors who've got their Oscars and they keep them in their loos. Um, where do you keep all your trophies? In the living room, my wife has a bunch of trophies up. Actually, she has different things in different rooms, but uh, there's one that's got a lot of very good awards and big awards, like the National Medal of Science in the U.S., National Medal of Technology, Priestley Award, and certainly the Queen Elizabeth Trophy is is is, is front and center, and you know there, and uh, along, you know it's it, it's certainly a great honor to me. And then uh, my my MIT office, my secretaries have various plaques up in the wall. It must be a pretty crowded wall. So what next 
for you? You know, you've already made a tremendous impact. Where are there rooms for improvement or or what areas do you see? Oh, I, I, you know, I really want to go in that direction. Well, there's a number. We're right now in our lab, uh, we're working a lot sponsored by the Gates Foundation to develop new medicines and new vaccines for the developing world, you know, ways that you could give a single injection, for example, for a vaccine, but have it be self-boosting, you know, where one injection would actually lead to the equivalent of maybe 12 injections, but it's but by making little nano or microparticles that might burst at different times. We're also working on better ways of, of giving micronutrients, again, because of the starvation issues in the developing world and new kinds of pills that you could swallow and but they'd last for an entire course of treatment uh, and you take them orally so pills that you could last for a week or a month and and these would be useful not only in the developing world but also in ev- everywhere and then uh, we're, we're also as, as we talked about working on tissue engineering working on on creating new tissues like you know maybe pan- an artificial pancreas uh, and we're working on Things like creating, you know, brains on a chip with leeway Sai at MIT and gastrointestinal tract on a chip with Gio Traverso at MIT. And, and, and these, uh, you know, could someday enable ways where you would use animals a lot less for testing uh, and, and, and hopefully humans a lot less for testing and might accelerate uh, drug development as well. These are all our hopes. This just sounds incredible that there is so much more exciting work to continue with. I believe that's the case. Research, whether it's with us or all over the world, you know, I think it's an exciting and certainly very important time, as, as we could see from the COVID issues. But I think it's it's was important before, maybe even more important now. And how do you see the future of engineering? Well, I think engineering will only grow and do better. And, and you know, like I say, there's just so many challenges that we have across the board. You know, I mean, I focus more on chemistry and medicine, but the others are focusing on, on electrical issues, on computer issues, artificial intelligence. There's just so many things that engineering has and will continue to play a, a major role. Bob Langer, thank you so much for joining me on the Create the Future podcast. Well, thank you. It's an honour for me. I appreciate it. Find out more about the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering by following QE Prize on Twitter and Instagram or visit qeprize.org. Thanks for listening and see you again next time. 